go ahead and get started this morning. And cool. All right. So like Gio said, I'm Kyle. It's really cool to be back here in Shoreline. Uh, this is where, where I got to grow up and where I first came to the church. And, you know, as I looked out at the faces today, each one of you guys have gotten to, thanks Gio, uh, each one of you guys have gotten to share moments with me as I started out in my Christian walk. And so I, I'm truly and really grateful to each and every one of you. And I'm excited to be able to get to talk to you guys today on this idea of biblical grace. And so for my lesson today, what I mean by biblical grace is grace is a concept that I think as Christians, as disciples, we're all familiar with to a certain extent, right? If we were to say what grace was, we might say it's God's undeserved love for us. It's his gift to us as Christians. He showed us grace on the cross. He loved us when we didn't deserve it. And all of that would be true. And all of that is absolutely right. But that's not the whole scope of what grace really is. And so this lesson is kind of a mashup. I stole the uh, content from a couple of lessons I got to be taught in school because I got to take a class on the history of the New Testament and its creation. And then it's also, uh, I stole a little bit from a sermon that one of the uh, ministers from our fellow churches preached a while ago. So I'd like to take credit for the content today. Unfortunately, I can't. But somebody once told me the key to originality is forgetting where you heard it. So that's what I'm going to do today. <laughs> But we're going to go ahead and get started. I want to look at this idea of biblical grace. We're going to go to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. And I'll go ahead and read it in one second. I'll give you guys a chance to turn there. If you want to follow along on the screen behind me, you can. But before we do, I'd like to go ahead and have a word of prayer. So if you'll just bow your heads with me, I'll pray us in and we'll get started. Father God, it's, it's a joy and a gift to come before you today, Lord. I'm grateful for that, God. I'm grateful, Lord, um, just for the blessing of fellowship and getting to be together, God. I pray that your word would be spoken, Lord. I pray that you would really just not let me say a word, but just speak the message you want spoken through me, God. I pray that you would move in each person's heart to meet them where they're at this afternoon and to give them what they need. I love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. I want to add a little special thanks, Lord, that the uh, Patriots are no longer in the playoffs. <laughs> That was a good gift. Sorry, AJ. Um, but no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Thank you, God. We love you. It's your name we pray. Amen. All right. So we're going to go ahead and get started. Starting in uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 11, it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope. The glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. All right, so we're going to go ahead and break down the scripture a little bit later. We're not going to actually touch it right now, but I do want to explain something. If you notice, the word grace is in the first sentence of this passage, and it really frames the entire working that's going on in this section of scripture. And it may seem random or it may seem like a single word, but I encourage you that when Paul writes this letter, the use of grace here is anything but random. There's actually a very intricate structure based on the ancient understanding of grace that's going on here throughout Scripture and that really uh, occurs throughout the entire New Testament as a whole. So we're going to come back to this in a second, but before we touch it, I just want to look at what ancient grace was. Because today, 2,000 years later in 2020, we have a very different understanding of the word than the ancient Romans and, Christ and the first Christians would have had. Because, like I said earlier, right, if we were to try to define grace, we might say it's God's love and God's gift, and that's great. 
But if you really want to understand what grace meant to the writers of the New Testament, to the readers of the New Testament, then the best way to think about grace would be as a social, political, and economic structure. I'm going to explain what I mean in a second here. So I want to go ahead and turn. This is going to be a little preview into grace. If you look on the slide to the left there, I got to do my L's for you guys. But if you look on the slide to the left, that's the Greek uh, in the original spelling of the New Testament. That's how grace would have appeared. And in the ancient Greek, it was pronounced kadis. Kadis was the word they had for grace. And grace wasn't a Christian invention. Grace was actually invented a couple, a couple dozen centuries before, the Christian, before Christianity ever emerged, ever emerged. And it was invented by the ancient Greeks. So I have a quote up there from Aristotle that talks about how you can read it if you want to summarize it. But it says, grace is really just helping somebody in need without expectation of return. And there was the ancient Greek philosophers that really started thinking about these ideas of grace. And if you fast forward a, a, couple, a couple centuries, when the Romans uh, conquered them, they took these ideas of grace and they institutionalized them. And they formalized them and they made grace the structure of Rome. And what I mean by that is to understand how grace worked in the ancient world. Today in America, we live in a system based off capitalism. Right? And we, we believe in you know, decentralized control of economic resources, free market competition, things like that. None of that existed in ancient Rome. That didn't come from almost two, two millennia later. Rome's economic system, Rome's social system, Rome's political system was grace. And it was so prevalent and so powerful and so important to the functioning of Rome that some of the most important writers of their time, guys like Cicero and Seneca, wrote that grace was the foundation of Rome, that it was the mortar that kept the far-flung empire together. And so I want to go ahead and talk now a little bit about Roman grace was. So, the Romans invented grace because, uh, because they had a very specific problem that no other civilization has ever faced in the course of human history. They dominated the world for over a thousand years, and at any given time in their history, they controlled about 10 to 20 other conquered nations. Now, I know we might not know much about ruling ourselves, but when you come in and you kill a nation's, you kill a nation's fathers and sons, when you take their daughters into captivity, when you burn their cities to the ground and take their wealth, they don't like it very much. And if you're a Roman general, the last thing you want to do is pay a whole bunch of money to conquer a people, only to have them rebel against you five months later. And so the Roman emperors, they sat atop the largest civilization the world's ever known that spanned three major continents, encompassed entire oceans, crossed hundreds of rivers, dozens of nationalities, spoke plenty of languages, hundreds of religions. And the, the challenge they had to face was how to keep it all together. And the solution to their problem was grace. And so here's how the Romans taught grace. I have a picture of a statue up there. That's a picture of a statue. It's called the Three Graces. And this is a picture of one of those statues in London. But you can find replicas of this statue from Portugal to Turkey because that was the expanse of the Roman Empire. And what the Romans would do is when they came into a new territory and conquered the people, they would build this statue in the marketplaces in order to teach them how to live in grace. Because in the ancient world, people couldn't read or write. 
So if you wanted to teach something to a lot of people quickly, the best way was a statue. I said earlier that some you know, men like Cicero and Seneca, if you don't know who they are, I don't have the time to explain their history, but they've been more influential to Western civilization than Socrates and Plato combined. But these men spent a lot of time writing about the proper and honorable way to live in grace, because grace was something that was so integral to the Roman world. So I have a quote here written by Seneca, right around the time. Actually, it was, this quote was actually written by Seneca somewhere during Jesus' lifetime about, so we don't know exactly, but pretty close. And he's teaching how to live in grace based off this statue as an analogy. And he says, why do the sisters hand-in-hand -hand dance in the ring which returns upon itself? For the reason that a benefit passing in its course from hand to hand returns nevertheless to the giver. The beauty of the whole is destroyed if the course is anywhere broken and has most beauty if it is continuous and maintains an uninterrupted secession. So here's what he's saying here. In Greek and Roman mythology, the three graces were three sisters and they basically held hands and they danced an eternal dance of joy and peace and blessing and benefit and wealth to people. And the Romans were saying that grace should function the same way, that it should be an eternal dance of joy and peace and blessing. And just like any dance, like the waltz or the tango, grace has very specific steps that must be followed in a very specific order. So I'm going to explain a little bit about how Roman grace functions. I have two little charts behind me to try to explain how this relationship of grace worked. If you look at the one on the left, grace was always a relationship that took place between two people, a benefactor and a client. I'm sorry for the weird language, but it's what they use in their literature. But the benefactor was somebody with wealth, somebody with power, somebody with prestige and notoriety in society. They were the LeBron James, the Barack Obamas, the Michael Jordans, the Jennifer Anisons, those kinds of people. The clients were poor peasants and day laborers who had nothing. And the way grace was meant to work is it was meant to be an eternal dance between a client and a benefactor. And the reason there were three graces in the statue is grace had three parts to the dance, three steps. And that's what my little recycling diagram on the right highlights. <laughs> So the three arrows represent the three steps. And the first one, I don't know if you can see the writing too well up there, but it says caudis, and it means grace. And what it meant was the gift given, and that's the downward arrow coming this way. And that was done by the benefactor. Because, you see, for Roman grace to initiate, for a, for a relationship of grace to come into existence in ancient Rome, it always had to be voluntarily initiated by a benefactor. And what they would do is they would willingly choose to bestow a portion of their wealth, a portion of their prestige and their power and even their family name onto a client who had not previously earned it and who could not repay the gift of wealth. And what was then expected is the second bar there across the bottom was called Eucharist. And if you recognize that word, that's the word the Christians eventually took for communion. But what it translates to is thanksgiving, or the gift received. And what it means is that once a benefactor had chosen to initiate grace on a client, the client's first responsibility was to receive the gift thankfully. And then, the last step of the dance, in order to complete the circle and keep it going, was also called caudis, 
but this time with a different connotation. It, it, it would more accurately translate to something like gratitude in English. And what it meant was the gift returned. And it meant that the client, after receiving this grace gratefully, would then turn and serve the master in some way that they requested. And upon their, the, upon their act of service, the master would then continue the circle by giving more grace, leading to more service, more grace, more service, and on and on it was supposed to go. Because in Rome, it was considered dishonorable to break a relationship of grace. If a benefactor chose to give grace, they did not have the power to revoke it. So what that meant was it was supposed to be a long-lasting, lifelong relationship. And most scholars believe that this is one of the best social forces that helped keep the Roman Empire together for over a thousand years. Because what would happen is both parties would benefit. After Rome would come in and conquer a new territory, the people they conquered weren't too happy with them, but they would immediately start pouring out blessings on those people. Because in the ancient world, Rome had the best medicines, the best clothing, the best schools, the best weapons, the best homes, the best engineering. They had the best of everything. And so what they would do is they would take over a conquered people and immediately start raising their standard of living. And the Roman generals and emperors and governors benefited because that way the people who would now want to rebel don't want to rebel anymore. And you don't have to worry about getting a knife in your back while you sleep. But at the same time, the people who were conquered suffered initially. But over time, as the blessings kept coming and their standard of living kept being elevated, they started to benefit. And before long, a mutual system was born. So I want to give a little example, kind of a walkthrough, of what this cadiz might have looked like in ancient Rome. And so imagine that this room is, let's say we're a marketplace in the middle of ancient Rome, and say I'm a wealthy benefactor. Maybe I own a couple shipping companies, and I profit off a lot of you know, international trade. And I'm going to pick on Gio. So let's say Gio is a poor peasant farmer <laughs> who lives in a shack outside the city with his family. And what he does to make a living is he harvests vegetables that he sells in the market. <laughs> so let's say one day I'm walking through the marketplace. We're all here, and I see Gio, and maybe he's got a little stall with his veggies, and he's got Jaden and Juliana running through the crowd trying to get people to come by them. And he's got Karen, you know, on the, on the, like, the little corner of the marketplace, a little sign, fresh veggies this way, <laughs> trying to lure people over. Maybe I see Gio, and maybe I like something about him. Maybe he seems like a hardworking man. Maybe I like the way he seems honest or how he treats his family. But for whatever reason, I decide, you know what? I have a different purpose for Gio than to be a vegetable farmer. So I go over to him and I tell him, Gio, stop. Call on your wife. Call on your children. Close down your stall. From this day forward, you will never be a vegetable farmer again. Instead, I will give you cotties and you will come with me. And I will teach you my ways, and you will walk in my paths. And according to your ability, I will put you in charge of many things. And so what would happen is when Jaden and Juliana come back, I might see their clothes, and I might say, you know what, Gio? If you're to be associated now with my name, then your children are going to need some better clothes. They look like they've seen a few harvests. So tell your children, put those clothes away, and my tailors will come and make you new clothes. Maybe I look at Gio and I say, Gio, you're a hardworking man. You're on your feet a lot of the day. I got to be honest with you. I, I think 
You know, I think a man of your age really needs some more comfortable shoes. That's right. That's the, that's the grace. And so I give him new shoes. And I see his home out there in the fields, and I think to myself, that won't do. Because I need to make sure that people who are associated with me, that I'm in charge of, are protected. So, Gio, collect your family. From now on, you don't live in that shack outside the city anymore. You may come, and you may have these homes on my estate. And you and your family will live there now. And if Gio received Cadiz in this way, then in one instant, his life was elevated to a level he never would have dreamt possible. Because in ancient Rome, there was no way to get a new career or switch careers or, you know, rise through the ranks. If you didn't know somebody, then you did what your father did before you and his father before him, and you did it till you died. But when you received Cadiz, your life was completely changed, but not just yours, but the lives of your children and your children after them. Because in Rome, grace was never allowed to be extended to a single person. It always had to include their household. As well. And so that's what grace would have looked like. And this system, this relationship existed on all levels of society, from private citizens to companies to even citizens and cities. And this is what constituted ancient Rome. So now I want to flip a gear a little bit. Now that we understand what grace meant, this is what the word would have meant. If you said the word grace or cadiz back then in ancient Rome, this is what everybody would have been thinking about. So I want to talk about how does this connect to Christianity today, right? Because you may be like me. You may love history and find all this stuff super interesting about how Rome operated 2,000 years ago. You may not care. And either way, that's fine. But here's how it connects to Christianity. When Jesus died, resurrected, and ascended, he left the apostles with a pretty tough command. Go and take my message to the entire world. In his lifetime, Jesus Christ himself never traveled more than a few hundred miles from the, from the town he was born in. And so the apostles, after Christ left, put yourself in their shoes. God himself just left the planet. You're stuck in Jerusalem. You don't know what to do. You don't know what the next step is. But the only thing you do know is we got to take this message of Christ everywhere. That's a pretty challenging command because like I said earlier, Everybody doesn't speak the same language. Everybody doesn't come from the same ethnicity. They don't have the same views towards God. And the apostles, the way they broke it down is there were typically two people in the world. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. Now, the Jews did have some special knowledge of God. They knew who Yahweh was. But Jesus completely and radically changed how we were supposed to relate with God. And so the challenge in teaching the message of Jesus to the Jews was trying to go against centuries of ingrained religious practices and, you know, hereditary systems of relationship with God. Things like, you know, sacrifices, temple worship, religious holidays, stuff like that. On the other side of that coin, the Gentiles were out there, way out there, and they had no knowledge of God and even less about Jesus. And so the challenge to the Christian writers of the New Testament, like Paul, James, John, Peter, was how can you explain how we're supposed to live in relationship with God through Jesus using only a few short letters? The answer that they eventually came up with was the same answer as the Romans. Because not everybody knew about God, not everybody spoke the same language, but everybody was under Roman rule. 
And that meant that everybody was living out these relationships of kadis or grace already. And so all the Christian writers really had to do in order to teach somebody how to live in a relationship with God was say, hey, it's just kadis. God's the benefactor and you're the client. And immediately, regardless of background or anything else, everybody would have understood what a relationship with God meant, what it was supposed to look like, and what it entailed. So, I want to come now and ask ourselves, what does this mean for us today? I was first exposed to this lesson, I got exposed to it a couple times, but for about a year, and I got to preach this lesson a couple months ago up in Simi, so hopefully you guys are, you know, you'll benefit from the second run through and we can be the guinea pigs. But I've gotten to sit with this stuff for about a year, and it's been really encouraging, really inspiring, really challenging to me. Because as I learn more about this context of grace, and as I learn more about what the writers of the New Testament meant when they wrote the word grace, it caused me just to kind of look inward at my own relationship with God and to ask myself, well, how do I live in relationship with God? How do I live in grace with God? And so in a bit, I'm going to flip to the next slide. We'll go back to the scripture in Titus that I showed you. And I really have just two main points that I want to make on grace today, and then we'll be done. But the real way that grace relates to us. I mentioned in the beginning that there's a very specific structure working in that Titus passage, and if you don't understand grace, you might miss it. Well, here's the structure that I'm at. And I've color-coded it. Cool, it shows up. I've color-coded it for a little bit for you guys, so you can just see the structure a little more easily. And this structure is called, I've heard it called most often, the commend-command structure. And it's built off this ancient understanding of grace. And it always works the same way. What it means is that almost every time in the New Testament, not quite, but almost every time that God gives a command in the New Testament, you know, turn from your sinful desires, you know, reach out to the lost, you know, be honorable, be holy, whatever the command may be, it is almost always preceded with what's called a commend, where first God commends his people. And I picked this, this scripture because it's representative of that. This structure plays out on much bigger scales throughout entire New Testament books, but I like this one because you can fit it on one slide and it happens twice. And so it's convenient. But the red is that first step of Cadiz. The red is where God talks about the grace and the Cadiz he's given us. And the blue is where God says, therefore, respond in turn. And really... That simple step forms the foundation for how Christianity is supposed to be lived in grace. And if you'll notice something, the red will always precede the blue. And the reason for that is in the middle, you're supposed to believe the red. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to read these. I'm not going to read these word for word. I'm going to summarize the main ideas. But starting in that first little cycle of it from in verse 11, it says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all of us. Therefore, we don't want to live an ungodly life. We want to turn from that and live in a way that honors God. Skipping down, it says, Jesus, who died for us to redeem us from our wickedness, 
who purified us so that we could be his own people, has come for us. And so while we wait for his second return, we want to be eager to do what is good for him. And that's the way that it's supposed to function. I encourage you, as you guys read the New Testament, look for this. If there's a command somewhere, go look ahead of it. And I, I, almost every time you will find a command. It's a little scary. Once you see this pattern, you can't unsee it. It's pretty cool. So I have one point that I want to make about the red and one point I want to make about the blue, and then we'll be done. But when I think about what it says in the red, this was the first realization that I had about my personal relationship of grace with God. And it was that sometimes I can read those red, you know, those red letters, what it says in the red, and I, I can let those profound truths just go right past me. You know, and I started to think about it like, what if I read this passage and really let myself hear what it says? That God, by his grace, has given me salvation, given you salvation. That he chose to redeem me and redeem you from our wickedness. That at the very moment, Ephesians chapter 2 says we were dead in our transgressions by our own actions, objects of wrath. At that very moment, Christ made us alive with him. Ephesians chapter 2 also says that we were saved by grace so that no man, not by works, so that no one can boast. And imagine if I just, what I thought to myself is I know those things, I've heard them before. I, you know, some of them I can pull off the top of my head, others I might have to go read. But even though I know those things, I don't always do a very good job of living rooted in them. Maybe you guys can relate. But the first point I want to make is that to really connect with what God says about us, that, you know, he, that he knows the numbers of hairs on our head, that his thoughts towards us outnumber the grains of sand on the beach. One of my favorites is 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 9, says that God apportioned his grace for us before time began. And what that scripture literally means is that before God said, let there be light, he'd already determined the grace he would give you. And when I think about Romans chapter 8, it talks about how nothing in all creation, either high nor death, angels, demons, power, principalities, authorities, rulers, anything, that God's love for us is so great that none of that will stand between us and him. That's what my creator says about me. That's the commendation that God says about me. But what I realize is I'm, I'm so quick to forget it or to second guess it or to doubt it. You see, living in grace only works if you believe the identity God says he gives to you. The Romans had a really cool realization. I love ancient Rome. I love ancient history. My favorite revelation that I've ever seen from them was their second step. In the Roman system of grace, they didn't try to run before they could walk. The first expected response wasn't just go serve now. The first expected response was receive the gift with joy. So my first point to you guys about really living and connecting with God's grace as disciples in 2020 is this. To truly live in God's grace, you first have to accept it. I have one last point and then we'll close out. I mentioned it. It'll, it'll be about the blue. It'll be about that idea of the gift return. And what I realize after this is that sometimes in my life, I can live on a misunderstanding of God's grace. And, and here's the misunderstanding that I mean. I made, a little, I made a little graph. But here's the misunderstanding that I mean. 
And I never say this out loud. I might never tell anyone I believe this, but when I'm not careful and I don't check myself, sometimes I can live like I believe this. And what I mean is that if I just obey enough, then I have my identity in Christ. If I just read my Bible hard enough, if I just pray good enough, if I just give enough sermons, or if I just reach out to enough people, or yada, 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 on and on and on it goes, then God loves me. Then those promises are true that we just read. Then his salvation has appeared to me. Then I am his people and redeemed. And in my life, maybe you guys have sometimes lived that way too. What I've noticed is that system always caves in on itself. When I get in that kind of spot, Christianity isn't sustainable. And there's a very simple reason for it. It wasn't how God intended it to be. So I want to draw a line in the sand this afternoon as fiercely, as harshly, and as confidently as I possibly can. That if you and I live like this, we are not living in a biblically accurate way. Here's a more biblical understanding of how grace works. You see, because I want to make a very important point. Grace does not exclude the necessity for obedience. But God designed grace to be the reason for obedience. 2 Timothy 1.9, the passage I mentioned earlier, it starts off by saying that God has saved us and called us to a holy life. And there's a very specific order there. Yeah. He doesn't do the reverse. He doesn't call you to a holy life and save you when, you when you start living. But he does call us to be holy after he saved us. And so the encouragement that I want to make to you guys today is that when we live this way, I think we connect a lot more with how joyful and how peaceful and how natural and fruitful Christianity is really meant to be. That when we live rooted in our identity in Christ, rooted and strengthened in the promises he gives to us in such a way that we then turn around and are eager to respond. That's where Christianity is meant to be. That's where that system of grace, that, that step of grace is being followed correctly. God gives the gift, receive it with joy, return it in whatever way he calls it that day, January 5th. 2020. So the last point I want to make to you guys today is simply this. That grace is the foundation for our Christian obedience. Thank you. I have a question for you, Kyle.